feed your brain with the amazing pod courses available on a daily basis for the special rate of $59 when you use my code SUP20. That's $20 of savings just for you. You will get access to CEUs for the following podcasts. This one, of course, First Bite with Michelle Dawson, SLP Now with Marisha McGordy, and the Speech Link with Char Beauchart. Visit speechtherapypd.com for details and use my code SUP20. The Speech Uncensored podcast is turning its focus to the topic of laryngectomies this week with my guest, Bridget Gunther. This episode lays the foundation for knowing our role in pre and post laryngectomy care. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and we're going to talk about things like stomas, HMEs, TEPs, and Larry tubes. So buckle up and tune in. It's going to be good. Well, welcome, Bridget. So nice to have you today. How are you doing? I'm great. Good to be here. Wonderful. I'm so glad for our topic. I'm really excited to learn more about a topic that I know very little about um, because I very rarely work with these patients. Um, So before we dive into our topic today, um, I want you to tell me a little bit more about yourself, uh, the work that you do, and your background. Sure. Um, So I'm a speech language pathologist and I came to ATOS Medical about four years ago to become a clinical educator. And prior to that, I was at the Albuquerque VA in New Mexico. And I had somewhere around 13 years working with head and neck cancer patients, a whole variety of head and neck cancer patients, everything from glossectomy to mandibular resection, um, laryngectomy, the whole gamut. I was um, very much entrenched in an ENT clinic, working very closely with them. Um, And... That's really the only place that I've that I worked. I did two internship rotations at a VA at that VA. Then I did my CFY at that VA. And I like to joke that the guy who had the job before me left the country because he said President Bush got reelected for a second time and he was moving to Canada. And he really did it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I applied for the job and I got it. So um, that's about what it takes to get a job at the VA. Like so I hear retires or leaves the country. <laughs> People were really surprised when I left to join ATOS um, four years ago, but it was just a really great opportunity to be very specialized in something that I'm super passionate about. Awesome. Well, since you've brought up ATOS, there might be a lot of people out there who aren't familiar with the company and the products and the work that they do. So if you just want to go ahead and give um, a summary of that, go right ahead, please. Sure. So Atos Medical is a medium-sized medical device company that specializes in giving a voice to patients with laryngectomy. Um, And so people that have had their larynx removed because of cancer or other medical necessity, they give them a way to rehabilitate their pulmonary function and their voice function. And to date, they've served over 70,000 patients in 70 countries. Um, So we really have a worldwide presence and I'm really proud of my association with them. That's awesome. I love that the size of the company came into the description, a medium-sized medical company. Like <laughs> because when we started, when I started in 2016, we had 40, I was think I think employee 43, and now we're up over 160. That's in the US. So it's That's really incredible growing company because of the needs for this patient population. So I'm excited to talk with you about them today. Oh, that's right. Because the um, there's growing numbers of head and neck cancer happening right now. Like just the presence of the cancer is growing exponentially. So I'm making a leap in saying then the surgeries and total laryngectomies are growing as a consequence of the increases in cancer there. Yeah, I think we see somewhere we estimate around 3,000 to 3,500 total laryngectomy surgeries are performed every year in the U.S., um, and there's other treatment modalities for cancers, but when it comes down to what we really is amputation of the larynx, um, there's around 3,500 of those surgeries every year. So, and just lots of quality of life issues that we can talk about too. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to get in to that. 
Um, but before we do, I've created six questions for you to answer. They're my who, what, when, where, why, and hows that are vaguely relevant and also irrelevant. So here we go. <laughs> so my first question is, who makes you laugh the most? I think it's a toss up between my dog and my husband and myself. <laughs> because I'm constantly tripping over myself or saying things. Um, but really, my husband and I, after almost 25 years of marriage, he makes me laugh quite a lot. Um, and his sidekick is the dog, Kovar. Um, so there you go. Very nice. That's awesome. And what's the best resource for laryngectomy education? Absolutely. The people that have had the laryngectomy. There is no book. There is no website. There is nothing I can refer you to beyond an actual person who's gone through the surgery. They are the best education. Um, I think we as a like company and myself as a speech language pathologist, um, I try really hard to provide that education and I'm a clinical educator, so that's what I do. But um, I can only give you the information that I've read about or researched or studied or my own personal experiences. And they really are first line in that. So. That's awesome. All right. Um, and now a curveball. Where was your last vacation? My last vacation. Um, I took my first real true vacation for nothing other than sitting around this past summer. And we went to Grand Cayman and I learned how to dive, which was incredible. Highly recommend it. Um, it was really wonderful. So I never grew up near a beach or never spent a lot of time at the beach. So I love the ocean. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. Go there, have fun, learn to dive. I've just realized that all the vacations I've taken were either to visit family or to see something, do something. And I'm not really doing lazy vacations, like restful, relaxing vacations. So I'm going to get on that. <laughs> Usually we go to a conference. We're very dedicated. We're like, oh, let's put a day on the beginning or the end. And I'm like, no, we're just going to hang out on the beach. So That's right. Just beach time. Yeah. Me and a fruity beverage. <laughs> All right. My next question. Why do you do what you do? Oh, I do what I do because I love it. And I wake up every day and every day is different and I'm never bored. Um, I do what I do because I think life is too short to be miserable going to the work every day. And if you wake up with a sense of dread and you can't manage to put a smile on your face and find the joy for going to work, then you need to find a different job. And that's the truth. So I do what I do because you have to be happy every day. And the patients um, that I work with, um, they're not my patients. They're all the other speech pathologist patients, but I just find joy out of helping people. So mm -hmm. very nice. Excellent. And when did you become interested in specializing? Um, Although like hearing, like you've only worked at the VA and you got into that specialization just because it, it was there. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me more, like what drew you to it? Yeah. So um, I was always interested in something medical speech pathology. Um, and when I found out that there was an opening for an internship at the VA, I applied. I am a military veteran myself. And so I really felt that kinship um, and that relationship with the veterans and I just stayed. I had a great group of people that I was working with and the vets are great. Um, and just to be at that level of collaboration with the ENT clinic and really work to improve the quality of life for head and neck cancer patients, it's just been my passion since day one. So Awesome. All right. And my last question, how often do you participate in SLP forums and what type of forum do you participate in? Cause there's, there's a wide range out there. Yeah. So um, I, that's an interesting question. So working for ATOS, um, I'm part of a medical device company. So we're governed by a lot of government regulations um, and we actually have internal policies about not being able to post on social media. So um, if I see a total, um, somebody who's just drowning and they're like, I don't even know how to take care of this patient. I might reach out to them separately. Um, but in terms of like a social media online presence, we don't really do that. 
Um, that said, I am a part of SIG3 and SIG13 and always have been. I have my board certification in swallowing um, that I renewed and I unfortunately won't be able to keep it this year because I don't have the clinical hours or the research. Um, but I have always found a passion for swallowing and head neck cancer. And um, I just really um, participate with people more in a one-on-one -on -one when I'm traveling the country um, doing my job. So. And when you meet up with those SLPs doing that one-on-one -on -one, um, clinical education and whatnot, do they follow up with you? Like, do you, are, are they interested in kind of like continuing that relationship and like reach out to you when they have further questions? Yeah. I like to think that as clinical educators, that we are um, the boots on the ground, the resource, and we are who people call when they have questions. Um, certainly people develop relationships with other speech pathologists, but a lot of speech pathologists are in smaller towns and they may have a one-off, you know, laryngectomy here and there. Um, or, and they don't have a lot of resources. So we like to think of ourselves as a resource. Um, and interesting that you should mention that because we actually just launched a program called SOS, which is called Spot on Support, that we have someone on call 10 hours a day. It's like a bat line for laryngectomy care. Um, not even kidding. Um, and the information's um, on our website. So I don't have that right here. But um, basically, someone calls the bat line, the SOS, the spot on support line, and gets one of us clinical educators. There's six of us in the country um, for, uh, for the US and Canada. And we provide that online automatic support. And it's a HIPAA compliant um, Zoom. So it's encrypted if we want to do video. It's just an awesome resource. So we're really excited about that. That does sound awesome. And is that for the individual who is utilizing the products or is that also for the, which is, which is it for both for the SLP and the patient for one more than the other? Like it's actually just for speech language pathologists and other healthcare professionals. If we get a patient that calls in, there's a recording that says, stop, do not pass go, contact your clinician. Cause we don't want to interfere with the plan of care. We don't want to get into a situation where we're you know, what we call offsides. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely have to link to that in the show notes so that um, people can put that on their radar. Because that, that sounds like a very valuable service. Like you said, we might get a one-off patient here or there. So we're going to kind of be that deer in the headlights, like, okay, what do I do next? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm going to call the bat line. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. All right. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue into our discussion now. So we're here to talk about um, care after total laryngectomy. Um, and even with that, like, I want to ask so many more questions. I'm like, does it have to be a total laryngectomy or is that just what we're focusing our topic on? Um, I guess also, I, I will probably say this a hundred times this talk. I know very little about this. So my questions, some people are going to be like, really, Leanne, you don't know that? Yes, I really don't know that. <laughs> That's why you're here, Bridget. Set me straight. I think you're right. You're right on. So I'll go to, um, you know, venues of uh, to do lectures and education, anywhere from like just two people to up to 200 or more. Um, and one of the questions I always ask is, what is your level of involvement for laryngectomy? Like, what what's your level been involved? Um, and all the way from, I put it right out there, I saw one in grad school in the textbook once. Like that is a completely acceptable answer because our field is so diverse. We go to school, we get our grad degree, and then we move on and we do whatever we want to be when we grow up. And sometimes we change decisions about what we want to be when we grow up. But um, but really our level could be none to all. I mean, and it's very, it's varied. Um, and there are specialized centers in large cities and in small cities, less so. And so, and then people don't always live in a big metropolitan area. So it's easy to find someone who doesn't have experience and we're still required to do our best ethically to, to work with those patients. Um, a lot of times what I find is that people think, oh, it's all about the voice prosthesis and we'll get into that. But there's a lot that we as a generalist um, can do to help these patients that has nothing to do with the voice prosthesis. That sounds like an excellent place to start. Let's get into that. Because uh, at the beginning, you did mention um, the devices uh, help protect pulmonary mm -hmm. health. So yeah. is that where we should start? Yeah. Why don't we just talk first about like, what is a laryngectomy, right? That sounds like an excellent place to start. Thank you, Bridget. <laughs> and you 
that, like, is it a total laryngectomy? Well, there's lots of surgeries that these brilliant ENT surgeons do that can save the larynx, right? Um, that we can do a hemilaryngectomy. We can do a supraglottic laryngectomy. We can do all kinds of, um, we being the collective, I slept at a Holiday Inn. I didn't do the surgery, um, right? um, but the surgeons are doing that. Um, and so we may see people that are in any variety of having had a, a hemilaryngectomy or a, a partial laryngectomy. Um, but really what, what we deal with and what we're kind of talking about today are people who've had the total amputation, total separation of the aerodigestive tracts. So they have a permanent stoma turned out to the front of their neck. They breathe through a hole in their neck. Everything from their hyoid bone, their epiglottis, their vocal folds, all of that is gone. That's what's amputated. That's what's taken out. Oh, the hyoid bone down. Yep. Ooh, I just really, I thought it would just be the cartilages. So, well, obviously Leanne learned something. Leanne's going to be learning a lot this talk. So please continue. (laughs) The whole, everything is gone. Um, And so all of that is amputated. It's, it's gone. Then they take the trachea and they actually turn it out. They sew a cartilaginous ring to the outside of the neck. um, And then that's what they breathe through for the rest of their life. So it's a major surgery. At the same time that patients have this laryngectomy surgery, they also usually have a bilateral neck dissection, meaning that they're cut from their ear all the way to the stoma. And the ENT surgeon harvests some lymph nodes to take them and send them to the lab to see if they have cancer cells growing in them. The drainage patterns in the head and neck, oftentimes if there's a cancer, the drainage patterns are into the lymph nodes in the neck and then down into the chest. And those lymph nodes could harvest cancer and that can dictate the next step in the treatment plan. So they might have chemo or radiation after their surgery. So we talked about what actually is a laryngectomy and then um, pulmonary, pulmonary, oh lordy, thank you. (laughs) Pulmonary rehabilitation. So thinking about when you breathe through a stoma in your neck, that means that there's no longer that connection, that filtering, that heating, that moisturizing that happens through our nose and our mouth when we breathe. And so um, one of the things that they often say is that my nose is just an ornament, right? Because there, it doesn't do anything. It just sits on their face. They're not breathing through it. They're not smelling through it. They're not drawing any air in through the, the taste buds. None of that is happening. And so um, the pulmonary rehab really becomes a critical part of their quality of life. One of the biggest complaints that the patient population has as a whole is not only how do I talk, but I'm dealing with all of this mucus. And this mucus is a continual problem. It's coming out of my stoma. Um, it's thick mucus. It's how do I, I have to cough and clear it all the time. And so pulmonary rehab becomes a really big thing. And so the use of a heat moisture exchanger is what helps to solve the mucus problem because it restores the heat and the moisture to their lungs, which then calms down the mucus and all the goblet cells and the cilia can start working the right way and not in a hyper excretory state that the goblet cells get into. Oh, that sounded so fun. Did you just say <laughs> goblet cells? I said goblet cells. That sounds like goblin, like something that lives, is akin to something that lives under a bridge, like <laughs> except it's related to wine glass shaped cells that are in the lungs that secrete mucus and when they get excited in response to this extra cellular stimuli like things floating in the air or being dry they actually secrete more mucus almost like a whipped cream can or a shaving cream can that you touch it slightly and what happens an explosion of whipped cream or an explosion of shaving cream that's what the goblet cells do. Okay, so how okay, so how does that heat moisture exchanger work? Um, is it mechanical? Is it just what does it look like? How does it do its thing? So it's basically a, um, it's like a sponge, if you will. It's a foam filter, um, but it doesn't have filtration properties in the true sense. But it's a piece of foam that is attached to the outside of their stoma either by a tube or a button, some type of intraluminal device that goes inside the stoma or some type of peristomal or base plate or sticky note kind of sticker that goes on the outside of their skin. And that holds an HME. 
So it's housed on the outside. When they breathe out, the HME is loaded with any heat or moisture that is in the lungs. And then when they breathe in, they take some of that heat and moisture and they drag it back into their lungs, almost to reinvigorate the lungs with heat and moisture. It's like a recycling tool. I love it. Yes. So it's recycling the heat and moisture from your lungs so that it stays in your lungs. Yes, it captures it. It's like a little repository for the heat and moisture. And it's it starts working within three breaths and it's fully loaded and working normally within five minutes. And that's what helps bring them from what they lost, which is a lot of moisture and heat. And it restores not all of that, but it restores about a half again as much. So everybody who has a stoma from a total laryngectomy should a hundred percent, like it's, it's almost like a requirement. Like they need this HME, this heat moisture exchanger. They do. Which is a very fancy name for a sponge-ish. That's it's a little more complicated than that. But. It's a special salt solution that attracts moisture. So it's actually hydroscopic, meaning it attracts moisture. Um, I know, fancy words for scientific things. Um, but really, um, we think about like things change, right? Medical care changes along the continuum, right? Um, we're not doing the same things um, for like heart disease or heart surgery that we were doing 30 years ago. Maybe we've kept some of those procedures, but a lot of them have evolved with new medical devices. Um, thinking about what laryngectomy care and post-laryngectomy care looked like 20 or 30 years ago, the use of an HME was not something that was in most practice. And as literature started to come out and science has developed, they've looked at what really is the quality of life. Again, we go back to the mucus problem and that we can improve their quality of life by having them wear the HME. And so it's been a change. So if someone worked with laryngectomy patients, um, you know, people that have had the surgery like 20 or 30 years ago, they may not even know what an HME is versus we have people who now are working with an ENT clinic and those patients are getting an HME put on at the time they come out of the OR. So they're raised up in the way that they should go, like children, right? Um, and they're actually wearing the HME 24-7, which means that they end up not having mucus plugs. They end up not having those life-threatening adverse events in the hospital. Oh, very nice. Okay. So like every SLP who is working on a unit where they're performing, or in a hospital, where total laryngectomies are being performed they should be providing these. Like it should be part of the course of action that the patients coming right out of these surgeries are getting their HME immediately. It's a standard of care. It's um, over 250 facilities and hospitals are using these and patients get them anywhere from out of the OR to day three. And that's just what we should be doing. Um, then the insurance companies is a different issue, right? Because the patients have to have their supplies. So even though there's tons of research that says there's still a small, not if you will, stigma, but a small pushback from the insurance companies or from care teams that may not know how important they are and so patients don't get a script for them or, and that just can take some time. Right. So I'm wondering if you can walk me through some common misconceptions regarding um, laryngectomies and maybe speech therapy related stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think um, one of the biggest misconceptions from a, from a patient standpoint is that the, the, they're going to surgery and the doctor told them that they're going to take out their voice box, but they're going to put it back in. So from the patient standpoint, sometimes they wake up thinking, why can't I talk? So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, and that's a little scary, right? You're like, how did that happen? Well, Probably that happened because the patient didn't go to see a speech pathologist beforehand for a pre-op counseling appointment. Because um, there isn't always this great collaboration. You know, sometimes physicians are located off-site or whatever. Um, the other thing from a, from a speech pathology standpoint is that, um, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, people feel like, oh, I don't do voice prosthesis. I'm not taking care of a TEP or a tracheoesophageal prosthesis. I'm not seeing laryngectomy patients. Where there's a lot you can do with pulmonary rehab fitting someone with a Larry tube or with a base plate, that peristomal attachment that goes on the outside, um, 
all of that can help to improve their quality of life. You can work with them um, on easy things. Even if you're not changing the prosthesis, you can work with them on how to clean the prosthesis. Like those are all things that you can do in therapy. And then we can leave the changing of the prosthesis to people who are supply, have the supplies to do that, who have the setup to do that. Um, but I would say it's a big misconception. Um, another one that I often hear, um, and this tends to be more, is that there's some, some places, some physicians who want to be Oprah and everybody gets a voice prosthesis and we're like, stop that train, right? There's a set of criteria for someone to determine if they're going to get a voice prosthesis. There's lots of ways that people communicate and not everyone has to have a voice prosthesis. So they may use an electrolarynx. They may use esophageal speech where they take air and inject it back into their, their throat and use the muscles of their throat to squeeze it back out. And then their articulators can form words. Um, they may choose to do pen and paper or AAC device. Um, not everybody wants or is appropriate for a voice prosthesis. Okay. And just to clarify within my own head as well, is a TEP and a voice prosthesis used synonymously? Did I say that word right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are they interchangeable? So I would say, yeah, thank you. That's a much better way of saying it. Are they interchangeable? People call a TEP the prosthesis. Um, they also call a TEP could also be the puncture, right? Because P is prosthesis or puncture. Um, so usually, if we're talking about the surgical part. It's the puncture, but most time we use voice prosthesis and TEP synonymously, interchangeably. Okay, good. All right, good. Oof, I'm glad I knew something. Yes. <laughs> Gold star. <laughs> All right. So what should SLP involvement look like prior to a laryngectomy? So I'm imagining the surgeon will, ref ideally in the perfect world, refers this patient um, most likely to an ENT clinic maybe, um, or an outpatient SLP? Yeah, I think um, it, it goes to an outpatient SLP um, if we know that it's a planned laryngectomy. Right? Sometimes they come in airway distress and they have to go immediately to the OR. Um, but um, yeah, definitely counseling. And there's some um, nice work that's out there that talks about what's the impact of getting pre-op counseling for a patient. And what it translates to is reduced length of stay reduce adverse events. And so if we set people up for success by educating them, there's really, so there's a nice paper, um, I think it's 2017 by Gray Boys um, that we can put into the show notes. Um, and that has a, a whole actual pre-op counseling session. It's an open source paper. You can get a copy of the appendix that has like, here's what your pre-op should include. And there's another paper out there um, by Shenson at all that also outlines um, outcomes from a pre-op counseling and what that translates to. So just some really nice work out there that says there's value in speech pathology and don't, you know, operate in a void. Yeah. Right. A yeah. <laughs> on what we're going to, they should, we should counsel them on what they're going to get into. We should kind of talk with them about safety, talk with them about HMEs, um, tell them that you're going to be a, there with them along the journey. Mm-hmm. Like we will pick you right back up after the surgery. Yes. All right. Um, okay. So a lot of counseling, a lot of education, a lot of prep work there and the prior to the surgery stage. And what about immediately post laryngectomy? So I'm thinking like they come out of surgery, they're now on a floor, um, they're out of the what's it, is it PACU? Is that the one where it's like the post anesthesia unit? Yeah. So there's all that, like on a floor that we actually work. <laughs> and is there a role for the acute SLP? Absolutely. Absolutely. So thinking about self-care, how to put on and off the HME, how to put in and out the Larry tube. Most of the patients have a Larry tube immediately after surgery that holds the HME in place. So how do they clean it and take care of it? Um, and even more importantly is that, and this can even start in a pre-op setting, is how to use an electrolarynx. So in the post-op setting, we want to consider, should we be using an electrolarynx with an oral adapter so that they can at least communicate their most basic needs? And a lot of facilities where they're doing laryngectomy are having an electrolarynx 
come in the post-op kit with the Larry tube and the HMEs so that they have access to it because of insurance issues, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. There are some state programs out there that um, are available for um, people to get electrolytic at reduced or um, no cost, but some states don't have that. And so, and even if they do, should we also be providing them something to communicate right away? So there's the, that's the role of the inpatient speech pathologist and just helping them to identify how does self-care is really self-care and knowledge because we don't want them to be afraid of their stoma. Like, and you don't want to stick a Larry tube in the day that they discharge and say, okay, here's an HME, here's Larry tube. See you later. Like if we're doing it early on, um, then they're getting used to it and they're managing their stoma. And then those patients are the ones that are less likely to come back in. And in the medical setting, we're monitoring, like who comes back in for a 30 day readmission mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. paid, right? Who got the UTI, who got the, aspiration pneumonia. So if we can monitor that on the front end by doing education. So. All right. And so I think then my third area was, okay, so then the long-term, so what would the SLP and outpatient look like? Or like, do they need anything post that education before the surgery and the acute state? Do they need to be seen on an outpatient basis? What would that look like? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I like to see them with a a fair amount of frequency in the early stages, because if a problem happens, we want to catch it early. Um, So I would say like once every one to two weeks in for those first couple of months, and then with decreasing frequency, but working on things, continuing to work on self-care, um, continue to working on communication and a laryngeal voice. So whatever their communication method is, we'll let them on that. Okay. So yeah. So if they went with the electrolarynx, you're working on that. If they went with the voice prosthesis, you're working on that. If they went with esophageal speech, you're working on that. Here's a question. Do people want more than one modality or are they like team electrolarynx all the way? I don't want anything else. Or like if they have a voice prosthesis, can they also do um, esophageal speech or is that like out of the question once they have the prosthesis in? I think that's a great question. Um, We like, I like for people to be multimodal, if you will. Um, at least bimodal. So if they have a voice prosthesis, I really want for them to have an electrolarynx or if they have a soft, like I just think everybody needs an electrolarynx as a backup. Like I'm just a huge fan because things can go wrong. Like with the esophageal speech where maybe you have some muscle tightness or you have, as you age, you have muscle looseness or however you want to say hypotonicity. Um, And so the electrolarynx would become a primary or if your voice prosthesis, you know, the voice prosthesis has to be changed every so often and things like that. And if it starts to leak and you have to put a plug in it to make it not leak and aspirate, and we'll talk, we can talk about that. Um, they need to be using an electrolyric. So I think we don't need to pigeonhole people. Um, I think if you talk to m- most laryngectomies, I would say about half of the ones that I encounter can say at least one to two word utterances, um, like yes or no, or things like that with esophageal speech, even if that's not their primary mode. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Okay. The other thing is, is that in certain countries, um, different modalities rule. Like in Europe, everybody gets a voice prosthesis. Electrolarynx is not super common. In the U.S., we have maybe somewhere between 30 and 50% um, have a voice prosthesis, and then people use other modalities. Um, In Japan, 80% of their people have esophageal speech. So it's just a very interesting dynamic culturally and all across the globe, just everything and access to insurance. Um, so I think it's something interesting to consider. Um, in the United States, though, there are not that many people who continue to teach esophageal speech. And so that's been a challenge for for people. There are some great patient mentors and there are some great speech language pathologists who do esophageal speech. Um, they're just fewer and far between. It used to be very, very common, you know, in the sixties, seventies, and even into the eighties, um, that people were doing esophageal speech, but then the voice prosthesis became popular. And I feel like we've had a shift. So. Yeah. 
I am definitely on board with you. I feel like the more methods people have to communicate, uh, the better prepared you are for all those circumstances that you mentioned. So, yeah, I like that. I would be a big proponent of being like, so you're 100% with the voice prosthesis, but also you're going to be learning how to do some simple stuff with esophageal speech, and here's your electrolarynx. <laughs> like, you, you will find that you will need all three. So, And, and the other thing I'll say cool. is you give someone the electrolarynx, right? And it's like, here's your voice. You're doing great. Rock on. Um, but what if they drop it? Mm-hmm. How many times have we dropped our cell phone and like cracked the screen? Mm-hmm like three times. Thank you very much. Um, the other day, the other day like the band broke on my eye, eye watch or whatever. And it like flew across the room and the whole face cracked and I had to send it back. So if you have someone that is a primarily an electrolyrics user, I'm a strong proponent that they need to have a backup and it doesn't have to be like the Mac daddy electrolyrics that they use all the time. Um, it could be a more simple device or they could have the same device so that they can send it back because when they send it back to repairs, depending upon where they send it and where they live, like it could take a week for it to come back. And are we going to leave them without a way to communicate for a week? No. Like, so I'm a big proponent of that. So good deal. Okay. All right. So next question, talk to me about cleaning and maintenance of the stoma site and all, like you mentioned, Larry tubes and cleaning things. And also you, you said something else that was like something that's going to be like adhered to their neck, like a sticker, so many things. There are so many things and that can be really overwhelming for patients. I think you hit the nail on the head. You're like, whoa, I didn't know there are all these things, right? Um, for sure. There's a lot. Um, so they do need to learn how to take care of their stoma. Um, if they leave it open, it, has a tendency to get crusted. I mean, again, what happens inside our nose that we can't see, right? Boogers, right? So they, fortunately we have a nose that houses our boogers. They have a that's open to for everybody to see booger land, right? Like, I mean, really, truly. So we have to diminish that crusting and all of that um, by wearing the HME, first of all. And the other thing is by good care. So sometimes the voice prosthesis will get secretions or um, dried boogers on top of the voice prosthesis and they pick them off with a tweezer. Um, daily care of a voice prosthesis is to brush it and flush it several times a day. Um, cleaning the Larry tube is to clean it with a brush a couple times a day. So, I mean, it's, it's basic care. They're fairly basic things to do, um, but I would say most people that I've spoken with, most of the patients that have had this surgery spend somewhere between like 10 and 30 minutes in the mornings, kind of getting stuff set up, getting their base plate put on, um, getting themselves set for the day. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm surprised by that level of frequent care throughout the day. So would they need to remove those pieces and brush them Three times a day, like almost like what we're told by our dentist to do with our teeth, like morning, noon, and night. Yeah. So it's interesting that you would mention the removing. Um, the voice prosthesis for most patients nowadays stays in all the time and does not come out. Um, there is a type that's called an indwelling prosthesis, the one that doesn't come out, and that's changed by a clinician. Um, there is a non-indwelling prosthesis that patients who are appropriate can get that they can put in and out or that can be managed by a clinician. Um, so I think it, there's a certain level of care, but I mean, they do have to take the Larry tube out. Sometimes though the base plate, they don't have to take out every day. They can actually wear it for more than one day. Okay. So it just depends. All right. So what, if they're cleaning, are they, what are do they have to take something out of their stoma to clean and then place back? Or how are they cleaning for things that if it's an indwelling prosthesis, like they're not touching that at all. They're just picking dried mucus off of it. Right. And they're running a little baby brush through it. Um, oh. Yeah. Interesting. I'm learning all kinds of things. Yeah. We uh, see. And don't ask me about aphasia. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I, be, I, like, I think it'd be unethical for me to see an aphasia patient. Like, <laughs> so it's been so, so, so long. Um, 
So we all have our specialty. And that's the beauty of speech language pathology is that you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. So that's right. Our field is vast. All right. <laughs> Are total laryngectomy patients more at risk for certain illnesses? Um, what, what kinds of risk factors might they be uh, more prone to? Yeah. So, um, you know, they're just breathing through an unfiltered, um, so they are potentially more prone to things, but I would say that overall, I don't see an, an increased incidence. Um, and there is a study that's out there that was done in 2014 by Vandenberg, where they looked at this and they said, do patients get tracheobronchitis or pneumonia events? And they looked at, it was, I mean, a relatively small N, um, an N of 89 patients. And looking at that, I mean, that's a large N of laryngectomized patients, um, but they didn't necessarily find that they're, that they had an increase in those types of lung problems. Um, but they did find that in people who don't wear an HME, those were the ones that tended to get that. So there was a tendency increase. So I think that by providing patients with the HME, we're increasing their lung their resistance against which they're breathing and their pulmonary health and pulmonary toileting, if you will, is better. Um, but we don't see things that are directly related. Like in this population, it, we're tending to see more HPV now, right? Not necessarily in the laryngectomy population, but some um, with the human papillomavirus, as we're seeing in oral cancer, that tends to be in more of an oral cancer thing. But we are seeing a younger subset, I think. Um, there's things like adenocystic carcinoma, thyroid cancers, that all of that can result in laryngectomy. Um, what we're seeing though, is that like old school laryngectomy or even the older population, there's a lot of smoking and drinking related comorbidities. So just because someone has a laryngectomy surgery doesn't negate the fact that they may have a COPD underlying that maybe it didn't come out because they were only 60 when they had their surgery. Um, and they can go live on till they're 90 because they had their laryngectomy, right? But if they have an underlying COPD diagnosis, maybe it wasn't evident. Um, I think that they're not necessarily like prone to things, but there are comorbidities that come with it. And then the other thing that we have to sort of watch for is that once the body's grown cancer, right, there can be some lung cancers that also happen. Um, I think it's, and one interesting thing is that there's a theory out um there's a pa one paper that talks about it for sure that the um, laryngectomy patients don't get colds because where does the cold virus live? In our nose. In our nose, right? And they're not passing air through there. Yeah. So, interesting thought. Um, there's a paper out there by Dr. Brooke, his name is, talking about not getting colds. So That's fascinating. I'm super skeptical of that, but not, but am, but now I have to go read it. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, but they, they're certainly prone to flu. Um, there's some literature out there that says that if they had to have a tracheostomy prior to their laryngectomy surgery, that they are more prone to having a stomal recurrence of their cancer, um, like getting cancer around the stoma. Wow. Yeah, so it's just, it's interesting. There's just a lot. And again, there's papers out there about everything, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So learning that okay <laughs> you you go in for one thing it's like going into target like getting into research is shopping at target you go in for one thing and you leave two hours later with a cart full of amazing things that you know you're never going to use or get to or read and but you know what you're happy either way you're happy and a little sad but mostly happy <laughs> but that's interesting that you say that because i have to go to target later i'll be thinking of that <laughs> <laughs> Make a list and stick to that list. That's the key. And on the other hand, we're, we're scientists at heart. Some we're curious. We're curious as a as a career field. We're curious, so we do. We start down one path and we go down the rabbit hole, and you never know where we're going to end up. And I find that too when I'm doing research for presentations. Is yeah. you're like, oh wow, oh I didn't, oh my goodness, I didn't know this. And then you have other one thing things to another. For two sure. hours later. You've got 26 new articles you need to read. It's like, why did, why did I even try? <laughs> All right. So my final question, because we're just swimming along right here. 
Um, there's so many more questions, but I'm going to try to, because I think this is a good juicy meaty one that you could probably spend the entire 45 minutes talking about. Um, what are some possible complications regarding TEP, the voice prosthesis and swallowing? Right. Yes. Oh, we, we do have whole talks about this. Um, complications with the TEP are that it is an artificially, it, it, the, the voice prosthesis lives in an artificially created tract in between the digestive system in the esophagus and the breathing system in the trachea. So that innately is a pathway for aspiration. We plug that hole up with a completely fully functioning voice prosthesis that's a one-way valve. So as long as that voice prosthesis is intact and its integrity is good and it's not leaking, there are no problems. But, but they leak for a variety of reasons, which, of which is another hour-long talk, um, mostly to do with biofilm, bacteria and fungus that grows on the silicone of the valve and conversely... Oh, on the esophageal side. The side we can't get to. Yep, the side we can't get to. <laughs> the little brush is supposed to help. Um, but so are things like diet and probiotics and like a whole host of things. Um, and the second reason that those tend to leak have to do with pressure issues. So we were taking patients who potentially could have had radiation beforehand. Um, they've had reconstruction with or without a flap of some sort, like extra tissue that was taken from their arm or from their thigh or from their chest. Um, and those have both of those situations can set someone up for um, having narrowing in their pharyngoesophageal segment, which then creates pressure issues. And path of least resistance is to push against that valve and create the valve to leak through or around. Yeah, because that's a weak spot in the system. Yes, it's a hole. There's a hole there with a foreign object inserted in there. Right. So. And we could glue that valve shut, and nothing would ever leak out. But they wouldn't be able to talk either. <laughs> Right. So <laughs> there has to be a certain level of pressure to open the valve that means that it also has to be resistant to things leaking back through. So I think that's the primary complication that can happen. I mean, worst case scenario is that the valve goes missing, which if you. Ooh, I'm sorry. What? Yeah. What? Come again? Yeah. Where does it go? That's a great question. I had a patient one day tell me that he was eating a cinnamon roll and that the roll sucked his valve in and he swallowed it. Oh. And we've all had, I mean, if you've worked with this population, you've had the case of the missing prosthesis. This patient comes in, they're like, oh, I can't talk or, oh, um, I can't find my valve or they're coughing and hacking. And so they have to go for a chest x-ray or a CT scan to find out, did it go in the lungs? So basically, if they can show it to you, then you know that it didn't go in the lungs. Right. Um, but if they don't have it, it's either in the lungs or it's down in the tummy, soon to be out of the tummy. So if they swallow it or it it's not where it should be, then they have a hole linking their esophagus and their lungs, their airway. So do they have to go like NPO? Like can they... Do they have to start spitting out their saliva? Like I'm all the questions. Yeah, no, it's great. I love it. Um, so they're all supposed to carry something to stick in the hole. So, oh, so they have like a backup. They, they're supposed to have a what I like to call like the laryngectomy emergency kit. Or my, my nickname is Lurse. I tell the patient it's a laryngectomy purse. Um, <laughs> instead of a Merce, you have a Lurse. Um, but it's got supplies in it, like just an emergency kit. And so if you're working with this population, I recommend you have them bring their, their Lurse with them to their, bring their emergency kit with them to your appointments and go through it. Like, okay, do you still have this? Do you still have this? Do you still have this? So if it's missing completely, they should either have a red rubber catheter or a dilator with them. And that should be able to go in the hole. Um, if they have the prosthesis, but it's leaking because of biofilm, they can put a plug in it to plug up the hole so that they can eat and drink. But as far as going MPO, I mean, usually if it goes missing, they're like in the ER and they're coming to see you at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon when it went missing, you know, um, the case of the speech pathologists who work with this population, you know, it's like, oh gosh, four o'clock on Friday, who's going to come in? Um, but I would say that if they go to the ER, oftentimes there's not a clue what to do. So then it's calling the ENT physician on call and hoping that you got a resident who was there when you showed them about the voice prosthesis and knows where your hidden stash is in your office. Um, it can be a bit problematic. Wow. It's um, becoming very apparent to me that 
like we really do specialize in a very specific area of medicine that doctors don't even know about that they like need to and have to refer to us on. So that's so interesting. I don't know why I still have this like view, like, Ooh, doctors are walking gods among us. Like I've got to like put that on the shelf. I don't know why. I don't know why, but yeah, I just figure like everything I know, of course they know. No, that's not the case. So interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like we just started scratching the surface of this topic and we are clean out of time. <laughs> this was amazing, Bridget. Thank you so much. No, thank you for inviting me to come and talk. I love talking about this population and love talking about my job. So thank you very, very much. And um, I'm available and there's a whole host of clinical educators that are available if you guys need anything. And I'll post all that to you for the show notes. And Perfect. yeah. Excellent. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to say this since you are representing the company, like basically, but are there other companies that provide prostheses and um, who are they? Yeah. So there's one other company in the U.S. that provides prostheses and that's InHealth Technologies out of Carpinteria, California, and they provide the Blomsinger and the InHealth line of prostheses. And they also have clinical educator. Um, so yeah, certainly that's another option. All right. Yeah. Okay. Good. But I, I guess I'm also surprised that there are only two, but then I guess I shouldn't be because like with um, speaking valves for our trach patients, there's a handful, but there's, well, there's more than two, but there's not like a baker's dozen or anything. Yeah. This is not orthopedics or heart or any other disease. Yeah. Very exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Thank you again, Bridget. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Again, big thanks to Bridget for coming on the podcast and sharing her knowledge and experience. It's so awesome. I want to direct you to the show notes on speechuncensored.com for research links and clinical resources from ATOS and InHealth as they both provide um, services and equipment for people with um, laryngectomies. And you guys, there is some great stuff there on both websites. It's incredible. Next week's guest is Hannah Grassi, who has incredible insight on developing specialty skills and working with individuals with Parkinson's disease. This episode is jam-packed with relevant insights, resources, and tools to be the kind of therapy provider our patients with Parkinson's deserve. I cannot wait for you to hear it. It is really good. And next, I wanna share another five-star review with you, and it goes like this. I appreciate that the speakers deliver helpful clinical information and perspective in a concise manner. I just started at an LTAC, and I'm finding these episodes to be extremely helpful and applicable to my job. Thanks so much for putting out these high quality episodes. I hope you continue. And I will. It's a joy to be a contributor to the nourishment of your mind so that your practice can flourish. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I'll see you next week.